This is KGNU's Morning Magazine for Thursday, February 16th of 2023. I'm your host, Shannon Young. Coming up on today's program, we'll get an overview of how some rural communities in Colorado are preparing for the voter-approved reintroduction of wolves. Then, the Cannabis Report team examines recent reporting on a rise in young children exposed to cannabis gummies and asks the question about liability. We'll also hear about new results from a CU cannabis study looking at twins living in states with and without legalized marijuana. And Radio Nibbles host John Lindorf will catch us up on local food news from his home bakery in Louisville. A BBC News update is at the bottom of the hour. After that, Sam Fuqua will host a panel of local transportation and micromobility experts. Phone lines will be open for listener questions. Then at 9.30, Doug Gertner will be in the Denver studio for the Morning Sound Alternative. All that's still ahead, but first, a look at the headlines with KGNU's Stacey Johnson. A Weld County Community Corrections Board Wednesday denied a request for an early prison release for an ex-Loveland police officer convicted of injuring an elderly woman with dementia during a violent arrest. During the 2020 arrest of Karen Gardner, then-officer Austin Hopp broke her arm, separated her shoulder, and sprained her wrist while also not giving her medical attention while he and others joked about her injuries. Hopp so far has served nine months of his five-year prison term. According to CBS Colorado, a community corrections representative advocated for Hop's release, citing that he needed therapy for mental issues, is a prime candidate, and that he could gain employment outside of law enforcement while on work release or at a halfway house. Garner's family attended Wednesday's hearing and expressed dismay and shock that Hop could receive an early release, especially after taking a plea deal that shortened his possible time in prison. Body camera footage released Wednesday by civil rights attorneys show interactions between an unarmed man who died while members of a Colorado Springs crisis response team handcuffed and held him to the ground. KGNU's Jimmy Sirfoss has more. The crisis response team that went to the home of 63-year-old Kevin Dismang on November 15th included a police officer, paramedic, and the mental health professional. According to the Denver Post, the team responded to a call about a man experiencing a mental health crisis and proceeded to physically restrain him. The El Paso County Coroner's Office ruled Dismang's death a homicide with the physical restraint contributing to his death. The coroner also determined that Dismang experienced a heart attack while being restrained and had a methamphetamine intoxication, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, and other health conditions. Soon after Dismang's death, the El Paso County Sheriff's Office investigated the incident with their 4th Judicial District Attorney's Office, determining that the responders were justified in their use of force and that the office would not file criminal charges. Attorney Harry Daniels told the Denver Post that Dismang's family wants justice and they hope local authorities will hold the paramedic and police officer accountable for Dismang's death. The Colorado Springs Police Department and Fire Department released a joint statement Wednesday saying that even with all the training and expertise, of the community response team, responders cannot control every factor, such as actions, underlying medical conditions, and and intoxication of the individual prior to the team's involvement. The Colorado Springs Police Department is facing other excessive force allegations, including one from a 29-year-old black man who says the officers beat him during a 2022 traffic stop, and another one from a teenage girl arrested in 2020. 
For KGNU, I'm Jimmy Searboss. This week, four elementary schools within the Poudre School District shut off water fixtures following state-mandated testing for high lead levels in their drinking water. KGNU's Alyssa Palazzo has more. Five water fixtures at Putnam Elementary School and two at both Bennett and Irish Elementary Schools were shut off as of 2 p.m. Wednesday after samples analyzed by the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment, or CDPHE, found five parts per billion of lead in the water. In a press release, the CDPHE said, quote, It is essential to reduce the risk for children as much as possible. Lead builds up in the body over time, and ongoing exposure, even at low levels, may eventually cause harmful effects. In January, samples from Polaris Expeditionary School, another PSD school, also had worrisome lead levels. Pooter School District Chief Communications Officer Madeline Noblet told the Coloradan that remediation for the lead levels might include, quote, a replacement of a fixture, installation of some sort of filter or filtration system, or it could be replacing a pipe or portion of pipes in a designated area. A 2022 state law requires nearly all public schools in Colorado to test their drinking water for lead by May this year. For KGNU, I'm Melissa Palazzo. January data from the Colorado Association of Realtors is showing that the Colorado housing boom has slowed down, while median home pricing in Denver increased close to 3%. In the surrounding seven-county Denver metro region, overall home prices dipped close to 2%, while prices continued to rise in Larimer County close to 7%. Compared to last year, they stayed on the market for about two weeks longer. Boulder says it will continue its search for a new independent police monitor. KGNU's Benita Lee has more. The city of Boulder announced Wednesday that the three finalist candidates chosen for the independent monitor position did not possess the skills required. The independent police monitor works with Boulder's police oversight panel and the city manager's office to support transparency, accountability, community engagement, and best practices within policing. Boulder created the monitor role in 2020 after a police officer confronted a black Naropa University student as he picked up trash outside his home. The officer, John Smiley, was found in violation of department policies and later resigned. Until the role is filled, Flo Finkel with the Office of Independent Review will be the interim independent police monitor. The role has been vacant since September when independent police monitor Joey Lipari resigned. For KGNU, I'm Benita Lee. U.S. Representative Joe Neguse announced Wednesday that the town of Silverthorne and the counties of Boulder and Larimer will receive funding from the bipartisan infrastructure law aimed at helping communities create safer roadways, reducing traffic fatalities, and serious injuries. The funding is part of the Transportation Department's Safe Streets for All discretionary program. Boulder County's allocation of just under 500 grand will go to the county's Vision Zero Action Plan. Boulder City Council will hold a public hearing this evening on a housing development proposal for the northeast corner of 28th Street and J Road. The plan would create 34 permanent, affordable, and 50 market-rate units of duplexes, triplexes, and townhomes. According to the Boulder Housing Network, the city's planning board gave the project mixed reviews in December because housing and planning staff disagreed over density. The city's housing department staff are urging the developer to maximize the number of affordable units on the site, while planning staff are advocating for lower density to match the housing in nearby rural and single-family subdivisions. The plan is part of Boulder's 2016 middle-income housing strategy, which sought to create middle-income permanently affordable housing in the area.
For today's weather, the National Weather Service says skies will be sunny with a high of 33 degrees for Boulder and Denver and a high of 36 degrees for Fort Collins. Wind chill values can go as low as minus 8 degrees. Wind speeds will range from 5 to 10 miles per hour. Tonight's skies will be mostly clear with a low of 15 for Boulder and Denver and 12 degrees for Fort Collins. For KGNU, I'm Stacy Johnson. You are listening to The Morning Magazine on KGNU. I'm your host, Shannon Young. Wolves may be somewhat common in Wyoming and Idaho, but Colorado has seen very little of the contentious carnivores in recent decades due to 20th century clashes with ranchers and farmers. As Colorado prepares to reintroduce wolves, people around the state are weighing in. For Rocky Mountain Community Radio, KDNK's Haddison Rensberry has more. Gray wolves have a nearly mythological reputation in a state where their appearance is uncommon and sightings are often heavily debated. So it is no wonder that some community members are apprehensive to Colorado's imminent wolf reintroduction. Wolves aren't picky about where they live. The only requirement is an abundance of large game. Notably, the region that has been determined to be most suitable for wolves in Colorado is the region where voters were less enthusiastic about the idea of another large predator. Earlier this month in Rifle, Colorado, a small town on the border of the reintroduction zone, a meeting was held to invite community commentary on the process and draft of the overall plan. A number of biologists and ecologists showed up to the meeting making their cases for biodiversity and the benefits of reintroduction alongside ranchers and outfitters from several different counties. Jack Ham and Levi Miller are two ranch hands that showed up to the meeting in support of their colleagues in the agriculture industry. Both young men come from families that work in agriculture. Jack spoke first about his reservations with the wolf reintroduction plan as it is, and Levi followed suit. I I just don't think it's going to turn out very well. I think there's too many issues that aren't going to be addressed and issues that we're not going to be able to see. With the cattle and the herd management, we won't be able to to just watch over all of them, especially with as much brush and covers around here. You won't be able to locate all your animals, and even if one is killed by a wolf, you're not going to be able to find it. Watching over herd mainly, because a lot of ranchers go up and check them maybe two, three days out of the week, and if that, one day out of the week. And with wolves, you'd have to check them so much more, and ranchers have so much more to do during the summer because they got to irrigate take care of all their other equipment and just to keep going up there to look after your cattle that's just another thing that you got to do and if not you got to hire someone to do it and ranchers don't got a lot of money. Another attendee was Mary Gervais, a retired biology teacher who claims that post-reintroduction wolves would be in the proximity of her backyard and she still supports the measure. I started learning about wolves and wolf reintroduction in 1988 We spent at least a month studying wolves and wolf reintroduction in class. We had a simulation. I personally favor reintroduction of wolves because to me, the health of wildlife and keeping the ecosystem in the best order it can be takes primary importance. And I'm here today because I figure if I talk the talk for all those years in school, I better walk the walk when it comes to my county. When outfitter and rancher Pearl Burby from southwest Colorado was asked what she was most concerned about, she had this to say. 
pretty much the ungulate population, it will be dramatically affected by the introduction of the wolf. And that affecting um, my family personally and professionally because we we already are considering selling our business because of it. Colorado Proposition 114 has already established that releases of wolves must be 60 miles or more from nearby tribal lands as well as the Wyoming, Utah, and New Mexico borders. And the initiative requires that the reintroduction of gray wolves must begin by the end of this year. Commentary on Colorado Parks and Wildlife's draft plan is only open until February 22nd, after which point the final draft and regulations approval meeting will be held in Glenwood Springs on May 3rd and 4th. For KDNK News, I'm Hattison Rensbury. More information and a comment form is available at wolfengagementco.org. Meetings can be streamed live or replayed afterwards online at the Colorado Parks and Wildlife YouTube channel. That story comes to us via Rocky Mountain Community Radio, a network of public media stations in Colorado, Wyoming, Utah, and New Mexico, including KGNU. Up next is the Cannabis Report. And now it's time for the Cannabis Report here on KGNU Community Radio. I'm Hannah Lee Myers, and as always, I'm joined by longtime cannabis correspondent Leland Rucker. Leland, thank you so much for being here. Always good. Okay, so we are going to bring you some headlines that we've got going on in the news with cannabis this week and some research. Please fill us in, Leland. Well, you know, I read a report uh, recently in Kaiser Health News, Kaiser Permanente. It's Kaiser Health News, and it was repeated in the more read U.S. News and World Report, and it was about how more children are using gummies, especially in Colorado, it said. And the number of reports the Rocky Mountain Poison and Drug Safety Office, one that I've read quite often, they put out this every year, and they only print bad news about cannabis. That's all it is. The office reports that kids aged five or younger exposed to marijuana went from 56 in 2017 to 151 in 2021. And the problem here is that keeping edibles out of kids' hands, at least in Colorado, is now up to those who buy cannabis. That's the rule. And remember that there were a couple of deaths that could have been associated with marijuana edibles ingestion right off the bat here in Colorado. One of them was uh, a young man who ingested some edibles and then jumped off of a uh, second floor uh, balcony and uh, and and he died. And the state acted to its credit. The state acted very, very quickly. And the story kind of skirts this. It says it's a state problem not a person problem. And the state has said it's not going to have any more bills, at least this time, that are going to address that. But the state has done a lot. I mean, this is, you know, in this during this time in the last 10 years, no edibles may be manufactured in the shape of a human, an animal, or a fruit. All edibles must be sold in child-resistant packaging and in lower doses. That was one of the rules that came in in 2021. That might change. Candy or candies isn't allowed on packaging. Uh, Advertising must not include cartoon characters or anything that's meant to appeal to children. And all packaging and everything has to have THC stamped on it. 
They aren't allowing young people into stores, so we have no indication that people are that kids are going into stores and buying masks. What's happening is that parents or somebody old enough to buy cannabis aren't putting their gummies away, and somehow the article implies that the state is to blame. One thing to remember in marijuana packaging is that most children five or younger can't read. Now add that to the many parents who don't know how to store marijuana safely. I'm glad that that was mentioned, but it comes on very deep in the story after kind of blaming the state for it. And the state's taken education seriously. The state health department has a retail marijuana education program established in 2014 to teach the public about safe, legal, and responsible cannabis use. Uh, One fact sheet advises parents to store marijuana in a locked area keep products in child-resistant packaging, and avoid using marijuana around children. That's what they suggest. It's interesting to me that this seems to kind of be cannabis being treated a lot like alcohol is in the United States, and firearms to some extent, that you have the right now to purchase these things, but it becomes the responsibility of the American legal purchaser to protect children from those things in the home. So honestly, with cannabis as well, if you don't keep cannabis away from children. And same like if you don't keep firearms away from children or alcohol away from children, there could be criminal negligence there. There can be child protective services involved and something like that. So it is interesting that to see cannabis be treated similarly to alcohol and uh, and firearms in that sense. But yeah, still having some people that are, are not accepting that, that it's the same thing there, that they still want more from yeah. the state. Interesting. So so CU, I know, has been doing some studies on young people and, and drugs, I believe. Well, you know, uh, CU's really been doing a lot of research on cannabis. The, the one uh, part of CU is doing the genome research, which is actually it's producing information that they're giving away to people. I think that's really great. And uh, they also have been studying twins. I can still remember when this came up, and it was just, like you said earlier, pie in the sky. That's exactly the way it was. But they found that legalized recreational cannabis um, and states that don't have any recreational cannabis, it's the uh, measure of the two in twins. And what they find is that twins in states that have legalized showed fewer symptoms of alcohol use disorder. Now, you know, th- this is no answer, and you know, but this is something that they're asking other researchers to look into. But they used researchers at the University of Minnesota, CU Boulder, the CU Anschutz Medical Campus, and they took data from two of the nation's largest and longest-running twin studies. The group found that identical twins living in states where cannabis is legal used it about 20% more frequently But when they compared survey results looking at 23 measures of psychosocial dysfunction, including cannabis use disorder, use of alcohol and illicit drugs like cocaine and heroin, uh, they found no adverse relationship between legalization and any of these measures. I think that's really an interesting thing. But the point here is pay attention to studies about cannabis but look at where they come from before you start spouting off. Like you said with that first study from Kaiser Health going all the way down to a more Colorado source that someone might not recognize that connection. And I think that anybody who is reading about cannabis use should take all of this in consideration when you're 
looking at stuff. Just don't look at stuff that, that agrees with you. Look at stuff very, very carefully and more carefully than you think. Yeah, we got fun stuff to read now, like twin studies <laughs> that we never thought we'd have. So thank you for bringing that information to us, Leland. We appreciate it. You bet. And you can catch the Cannabis Report here on KGNU the first and third Thursday of every month. For KGNU, I'm Hanalee Myers. The coffee is on in the Radio Nipples Test Kitchen in Louisville, where John Lindorf joins us live today. We are going to be talking about food identity. Welcome, John. Good morning, everyone. Gather around the gigantic KGNU uh, kitchen table. And, uh, uh, you know, I was reading this uh, story about how food identity has changed. And... um, you know, it, it used to be easier or simpler, you know, for people to, to bind, define themselves as eaters. You know, there were carnivores and there were vegetarians and or they were vegan or uh, organically oriented. And uh, that has all changed, apparently, uh, as climate change has come to the dinner table, according to reports that I'm reading. Uh, your new identities as eaters include being a climavore, a reducitarian, climatarian, or a, uh, a regenivore. And, you know, oddly, the f- first thing that came to mind was, uh, you know, it must complicate uh, those uh, dating ads on uh, Tinder or Our Time or, you know, Match.com. You know, besides what your political affiliation and gender identification is. Okay, okay. So I, I, there are a few of these that I need a little bit of explanation on. I can uh, kind of, dedu- I can kind of deduce, but like, I, I'm sorry, but climatarian, climavore. What's the difference, and what exactly does that mean? Well, uh, a climavore is uh, it's kind of a flexible designation, uh, which. So a lot of people will like it. It's kind of it's not quite omnivore. Uh, It's up to you. Uh, Some climavores uh, focus on improving certain things like eating pasture raised chickens or more local produce or organic ingredients or a plant based diet. Um, Climatarians are more uh, strict about it. Uh, because the food choices aren't really based on flavor, but on how the food impacts climate change. And uh, they tend to eat very little uh, beef or uh, other animal meats and dairy. Okay, so where does plant-based eating come into all of this? Like, what category is it? Is it under the umbrella? Um, You know, the real problem is, uh, according to the NDP group, 25 million consumers are now eating what what are called plant-based foods, at at least sometimes. Um, But, you know, there actually is no legal or other definition of what plant-based means or whether it's better than Um, meat-based. It's a a strange thing. there's also uh, sustainitarians, uh, but they're, they're they're very interested in uh, how the food is grown and transported, and uh, 
you know, they're focusing on regenerative farming and uh, sustainably uh, grown uh, harvested fish and game and, and that kind of thing. Okay. Uh, but, reduce the Oh, go ahead. But, but like in a state like Colorado, where agriculture, where we have a water crisis, where agriculture is taking the lion's share of water use, what is the most responsible type of diet if you're looking to to be sustainable as far as water goes? Um, well, uh, you know, it's hard to rationalize if you if you really care about water, uh, it's very hard to rationalize uh, eating beef uh, with and, and uh, pork. Um, there's a lot of crops, too, that are just uh, water intensive. And then there's there's other things like uh, beans and pulses, uh, which are uh, much more sustainable and tend to regenerate the food you know, that it comes from. Oh, my goodness. Time is getting away from us. So why don't you tell us about some of the other local food news from this week? I'm amazed that the continued opening of more restaurants in Boulder. Uh, I noticed that the Pasta Press, a new Italian eatery, is open at uh, 911 11th Street in Boulder. I also wanted to bid a fond fair adieu to... um, a really notable Boulder restaurateur, Don Manette, who passed uh, February 14th. He started the Flagstaff House restaurant in 1971. When I became a food editor in 1985, um, Don really uh, went out of his way to help me. Uh, I, I really didn't know anything, and, and he really helped uh, me to uh, learn more about food and wine. Oh, wow. Well, so... Uh... Given the time, I'm just going to ask you to give a very bite-sized sound bite about what what's the best thing you've had to eat lately. There's this cool new place in uh, Lafayette called Cherries Cheesecakes and Delights. It's serious Southern-style cheesecake and pecan pie and bread pudding. Well, you can always check in on John's uh, podcast at news.kgnu.org or in his column at the Boulder Weekly. John, thanks so much as always. Uh, no matter what, love thy neighbor whether they're paleo, vegan, or sustainitarian. That's going to be it for today's Morning Magazine. I've been your host, Shannon Young. Stay tuned for a special program on local transportation and micromobility hosted by Sam Fuqua. That's coming up on the other side of the BBC News Headlines.